You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena, the parochial vicar of St. Anne's Parish in Butte, Montana, and chaplain of Butte Central Catholic Schools. Enjoy. We dug into sort of the origin, the origin of the universe and proposed a few sort of fundamental life questions that seem unanswerable if we're taking a purely scientific or materialistic worldview. And hopefully began to put forward a few answers to those questions, uh, specifically the cosmological argument as a, as a sort of proof that at least forces someone to acknowledge the inadequacy of a purely material idea of the universe. And there's, and there's many other arguments like that in the history of the church. I mean, I think even just the ones I've studied probably into the 20s of different sorts of arguments that are, that are compelling in their own way. Almost like a, if you were going into court or if you were going into some sort of investigation of someone and you're putting forward as much evidence as you can from every different angle to prove either the guilt or the innocence of that person. We, that doesn't take away from each individual proof or each piece of evidence. Newman always pointed out that when it comes to especially belief in God, it's, it's like he left it up to us to, he, he can, we can be certain of his existence, but rarely certain by one means. It always seems to be a sort of collection of things that come together to make it not only probable, but sure that God exists and that he works in this world. So we'll kind of begin uh, the journey into a little bit further into history today, hoping by the end of this talk to get all the way up to Adam and Eve. So we're, we'll get way further along. And as far as years in the, in the world, we're pretty dang far along if we get there. The first portion of this talk is going to be way more scientific than theological because I'm going to kind of just take a give you an overview of scientific theory as it stands today, all the way up to uh, what we would call the, the cognitive revolution uh, in a scientific terms. And then hopefully interpret that through the lens of faith. And as Catholics always do, bring together faith and reason. Because we say truth is truth, truth cannot contradict truth, our faith can't contradict our reason. So these things have to make sense together. It is pretty wild how today, as science advances further and further, and we get a, a, a slightly better, not we still don't have a, a great understanding of things that far back. But the more and more we begin to understand them, the more and more our faith and the scientific theories come together in a beautiful way. I'm going to hopefully try and do that today. So how and when did we as humans appear on the historical scene? Does anyone know how old the universe is? Yeah, 13.6 billion. What about Earth? Yeah, 4.5, 4.6. That's pretty standard. What about organisms on Earth? What I have on here is 3.8 billion, as far as like single-celled organism, which is a long time ago. How long have, has the genus Homo, to which we belong, 2.5 million years ago, Nothing really happened for the first two million. Then uh, 500,000 years ago, Neanderthals. 300,000 years ago, we kind of 
came to understand fire on some level, in the sense that we could burn down a forest to eliminate our enemies. So it's not a great use of fire, but if you need to, to survive. And then 70,000 years ago, the cognitive revolution. And so you don't have to remember all those numbers, as I said. Uh, that's just a sort of overview of this timeline, and we'll, we'll kind of come back to it as we, as we go. So when we talk about creation and evolution, JP2 said very clearly that it is not impossible for evolution to have happened. We have a tendency to sort of fall back on the literalistic reading of creation as the only way forward because people say all the time, well, evolution has debunked Genesis and all these different things. And that's a foolish, stupid thing to say. It's just not true. It's a bad reading of Genesis to say that. I don't know if I went through a sort of exegesis of creation with you guys last time, but there's, there's a few very clear reasons why that's not. What did God create on the first day? Light. Separated the light from the darkness. So the first thing God creates is light. When does he create the sun? The fourth day. What is a day? What's a day for us, though? 24 hours. Why? One rotation of the earth. How can you have a day without the sun, which defines our day? doesn't exist till the fourth day. So the author's making it, making it very clear that when he says day, he does not mean 24-hour day. So a literalistic 24-hour reading of Genesis is not the only reading. It's not, it wasn't an impossible reading. People believed that reading for a long time because, there was, because our reason didn't tell us to do otherwise. To read the scriptures literally means to read the scriptures as the authors intended it. As we move forward, it's fairly obvious that it wasn't only intended to be read as a 24-hour day. In light of the Big Bang, it's actually a rather beautiful thing to think that the first thing God created was light. Because when you have a ball of ultra-concentrated matter at the beginning of time that explodes into an entire universe, the first thing is a massive ball of light. So at the beginning of the universe, the first thing really that happened was light. So it's a, it's a rather beautiful sort of reconciliation there, a bringing together of our faith and our reason. But I'm not going to do an exegesis of that today. The story of creation doesn't, it doesn't claim to make a divinely inspired statement on how human beings came to be, but what we are, why we're here, those are the questions it's answering. And then evolution seeks to understand how we developed but it fails to, or usually, hopefully has the humility not to even attempt to explain why we're here, or our nature, or our telos, our end. So let's talk a little bit about evolutionary biology. So our genus, Homo, evolves in Africa 2.5 million years ago, and sort of spreads out from there and adapts to its surroundings depending on where it ends up. So you've got multiple different species under the genus Homo that spread out. And what sort of defined us as a species? You guys have a guess? Yeah, larger brain in general, but, but more specifically a, a larger cortex. So the average mammal brain, 2.5 million years ago, for a 130-pound mammal, 12 cubic inches. The average Homo brain, anything from that uh, genus, 36 cubic inches, so three times the size. And so we had a very large brain. 
And then today, you don't know how large our brains are? Way bigger, 80 cubic inches. So we have huge brains for our size. It's unbelievable. Our brains take up a tremendous amount of our energy. It's only 2% of our body weight and takes a quarter of our energy. So, so it's actually not a huge advantage in itself. We need way more food, even at 36 cubic inches, way more food to make our brain work, uh, which is why our bodies slowly got smaller and smaller as our brains got bigger and bigger. And also our muscles atrophy quicker because of our brain just needing all of our nutrients. It takes all the nutrients and whatever's left over are the rest of our body gets. That's why if you sat on the couch for two weeks, watch TV with your dog, and you both just ate a ton, watched a lot of TV, at the end of those two weeks, you would have, your muscle would have atrophied a tremendous amount, and your dog would be exactly the same as it was two weeks prior. But that's because our brains take everything, and, our, and whatever's being used consistently gets the rest. That's why you have to work out. Animals don't have to work out. They just are. But we have to constantly work out to retain our muscle mass. So we consistently grew our brains over two million years by means of an evolutionary process, which is, does anyone know the basics, the very basic, like what is evolution? Okay, so that's kind of a, that's, that's like what's, yeah, so we look at it, we, we, see, we view evolution from 20,000 feet as an organism getting stronger and better, but what actually needs to happen is it just needs to have a genetic mutation that by some random chance happens to be advantageous. A bunch of birds live in a forest with full of trees with really thick bark. One's born with, a, born with a freakishly long, skinny beak. And everyone says, you're a weird-looking bird. But that bird can drill through that thick bark way easier than the stubby-nosed birds. So what do you know? It happens to reproduce ten times as much because it's stronger and healthier than the rest of the birds. So we would view that as getting better over time, but it's, it's not like there was a from a biological standpoint, a plan there. But that's the basics of evolution, a genetic mutation that happens to be advantageous. Now there's gonna be hundreds of thousands of genetic mutations that aren't advantageous and so those populations just die out. Now that's not the case with us though. It's just not the case. We, our brains kept growing and growing and growing and all that happened was we, ha we, we sort of started using a little bit more sophisticated tools. We gained the use of fire. It is impossible to explain why the homo sapiens that grew larger and larger brains were the ones that survived over the ones that had smaller brains because for two million years there wasn't a huge advantage for those larger brains there was actually a pretty serious disadvantage because it took more energy to make it work and really the only reason that we did survive is that we figured out how to cook now now why would that matter it's kind of crazy to think about. With the, our brains the size that they are, it would take about 10 hours of foraging and eating to survive a day. We would be spending our entire day just eating if we were just eating raw foods, which is why people who are on that, what's that diet called? Paleo diet, just eat all day. Because they're trying to do what we learned how to not have to do a long time ago. Uh, so, kind of a... I don't want to dog on anyone here who's paleo. It's just not the... I don't know. I guess in the modern world you can do that still too. And, you know, it's not a huge deal. Cooking allows us to eat... I mean, it, it cut that time from 10 hours to 1. Because basically what you do when you cook meat is you sort of digest it. 
and then you break down all the molecules that you would have needed your stomach to break down, and then you eat it, and it just absorbs way quicker. That allowed our large intestine to half in size. Our large intestine's half as long as it would need to be if we were eating raw meat or things like, you know, and, and, and our large intestine takes a tremendous amount of energy. So it was able to shorten up by a half, and then all that energy could go to our brain. So cooking helped us to survive. It's not exactly clear how that process happened or why it happened, but as of 70,000 years ago, we were a sort of mid-level mammal. We could survive, we could use fire, we had basic tools, we had massive brains that we didn't use, we weren't anything special as of 70,000 years ago. Then, out of nowhere, and very suddenly, we became the most powerful species that's ever existed on the face of the earth. In a single moment, 70,000 years ago. So like 100,000 years ago, we tried to go up into northern Europe and fight the Neanderthals. They were a little bit bigger and stronger than us, and they actually had slightly bigger brains. And we got absolutely dominated. Homo sapiens go up, they try to fight the Neanderthals, get fought off. No chance. Then 70,000 years ago, this massive thing happens, and by, by another 30,000 years, Neanderthals don't exist. Extinct. Gone from the face of the earth. So that's how, that's how drastically things changed. Uh, it's, it's actually theorized. It's, no one actually knows for sure, but it's, we're pretty sure that we had something to do with that extinction. Um, we went up there and just let them have it. There's a lot of people who have an axe to grind with that whole thing. Like we went over to Australia and all the megafauna were extinct within a couple thousand years. Which is a real bummer because there were like 11 foot tall ostriches and 13 foot tall kangaroos in Australia. And those have been awesome to see. Don't exist anymore. We hunted them in extinction pretty quick. Um, aren't we horrible? We're so horrible. In some ways, in some ways we are, actually. From 70,000 to 30,000. I mean, nothing had happened for 2 million years. And then from 70,000 to 30,000 years ago, we have boats. We're, we're sailing to Australia. We have oil lamps, bows and arrows, needles. Uh, commerce, like serious commerce that extends pretty far out. Uh, social stratification in a way that hadn't previously existed. Art and, most importantly, religion. And I'll say why it's most important. It's not just my bias from being a priest. So what happened 70,000 years ago? It's, it's called, in the scientific community, the cognitive revolution. That's the sort of word that's been put on it. But basically, you guys sort of named it, it's language. And not just the ability to, to communicate, because as many of you might think, like I talk to my dog all the time and he understands me. You know, <laughs> all, all animals do have a form of communication and, and s some have fairly sophisticated forms of edu er, education, not education, but communication. Monkeys can actually say something like, look, a lion. And so we've been able to recreate the noise that basically means that and they can play that into a group of monkeys. Look, a lion, and they'll all jump up into the tree and look around. That's, that's about as sophisticated as it gets for monkeys. Now, border collies can understand 300 different words. It's an amazing animal. It's nothing like what we can do. We can, we, suddenly, after the cognitive revolution, we could say something like, hey, down by the river, there's a group of lions chasing some buffalo. If we get down there in enough numbers, we can chase off the lions and have the buffaloes for ourselves. That's an incredible sentence, if you think about it. That's a, that's a detailed plan, and it can become infinitely more detailed if we want it to. 
as as we know. I mean, the English language is really well, not just the English language, language in general. But we're we all speak English, so we can think of it this way: that it's sort of infinite in its amount of detail that we can give it. It's versatile in a way that no other language is. Oh yeah, the second, which is interesting, is gossip. So we could suddenly gossip about each other. How many people do you know really well? Well enough that you know them personally, whether you could trust this person or not. You're just raising your hand because you're a person who can be trusted. <laughs> like, what's a number? Throw out a number. 20 is a good number. 20, I think the max, they would say, is 50. And they say that because chimpanzee troops never get beyond 50. And chimpanzee troops operate in this way that, that in order to be able to operate together, they have to be able to trust the one personally who they're going to work with. So our number is generally 20 to 50 that you can operate together with if you want to know them personally to a level of trust. Now, gossip is crazy because gossip allows us, what's it do? It tells us things about other people. But it's sort of, it's the news. It's the way of telling the news. Some studies say like 70 to 80% of everything that we say is basically gossip. Because we're sort of giving news about other people. You put like five Stanford professors in a room together. Are they going to talk about the brilliant things that they're studying? No, they're going to talk about who's getting tenure, who doesn't deserve tenure, what their niece and nephew are doing, those, those sorts of things. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to gossip. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate, but it's also extremely useful because by means of gossip, you can expand the group that you can trust. Now, gossip can often be wrong, but it's often right. So you get this sort of idea of people that you've never met as to whether or not you can trust that person. Because if someone's a real jerk, it gets out pretty quick that they're a jerk. And everybody knows that they're a jerk. And sometimes it's wrong, unfortunately. But most of the time it's right. You can know through gossip whether or not you're going to be able to trust about 150 people. That's, that's generally a, a pretty standard uh, study. The third and most important thing about what our language did was allowed us to think conceptually. I'll give you an example. What's a half? How would you explain to a five-year-old what half is? Yeah, so you take, you take a whole thing and you break half of it off and then you have half of that thing. So like cut a banana in half or cut an apple in half. You, we can only understand half in accord with the whole because half is a concept. Half doesn't exist in reality, you could say. So we have the ability to understand what a half of a thing is because, because we can think of things that don't necessarily exist in the physical world. And that's, sort of, that's called conceptual thing. It's like, what's love? How do you explain love? Well, we have definitions of it, but how you would explain it is most likely to give examples of it. Justice, prudence, all those things, all of the sort of things we call virtues are all concepts. They're all things that are sort of a gathering together and an abstraction of the actual things. And so we, we gained the idea, we, we gained the ability to think conceptually. And the most important thing about thinking conceptually was God. The sudden awareness of the divine. 70,000 years ago, we're suddenly aware of God. Well, so the example that one of the scientists used was two Catholics who have never met can nevertheless go on crusade or pool funds to build a hospital because they both believe that God was incarnated in human flesh and allowed himself to be crucified to redeem our sins. 
And that's actually crazy but true. I would go on crusade with someone that I don't know if it was for a worthy cause. Or I would pool funds with someone I don't know to build a hospital if they're Catholic. Only if they're Catholic. Because then I know that they have the same end that I have for this hospital. If, you, if someone has very different ends than me, then this hospital could be end, end up being something I disagree with. And, and a crusade could certainly end up being something you disagree with if you don't believe the same things. But in a sense, religion transcends all of those natural circles of trust and allows for an infinite growth. So the reason that human beings grew in the way that we did in our sophistication and in our structures of our society and in our social stratification and is because of religion. And that's, that's true across the board in every culture for almost all of human history. And, and part of the reason that it's all breaking down today is because everyone has fundamentally different ideas and, no, and can no longer stand to live in anywhere close to the people around them. So we're beginning sort of to isolate ourselves again into these smaller communities. I mean, identity politics is a, really a perfect example of that because we can't trust each other anymore. So it's kind of fascinating to see how that's all beginning to break down again uh, once, once you don't believe in those fundamental things together. So that's the most important part of, you could say, the cognitive revolution. The, the, name, the name for the sort of evolutionary jump that happened 70,000 years ago has actually taken on the, the name, the tree of knowledge mutation. And there's a, a fascinating quote. So why, why, so I'd say, I mentioned Neanderthals had bigger brains and they were bigger and stronger than us. How those two things existed together is actually kind of fascinating. Why didn't they receive this crazy mutation? Uh, one of the scientists said, it's a matter of pure chance, as far as we can tell. Sophistication of our, of our language. Infinite possibility for detail. Gossip, which allows us to sort of expand our circle of trust. And then the ability to talk about God, to understand God, and other concepts as well, gives us a sort of infinite possibility of growth. One of the scientists said, the ability to talk about God is fascinating because it's the ability to transmit information about things that do not exist at all. So the most important thing in human history, according to him, is a, a mistake, really, which is crazy. I mean, if, if you're a total materialist, evolutionary, um, a believer in evolution, you have to believe that it's all just a giant, crazy mistake. So, so fascinating thing, are we still evolving? And this is an interesting question. Our brains are pretty much exactly the same as they were 30,000 years ago. And pretty much the same as they were 70,000 years ago. So the, are we still evolving question, there's all these ridiculous theories about transhumanism and superhumanism and how, what's the next evolutionary stage of humanity. But those are all sort of science fiction in the sense that they don't really seem to line up with scientific theories today, which are that whatever happened in the cognitive revolution in sort of that big jump 70,000 years ago allowed us to transcend evolution. Now, if you look at a troop of monkeys, they are operating under the same hierarchical structure, the same governmental structure, you could say, that they did two million years ago. And they will be operating under the same one, given the same conditions environmentally, for another two million years, unless there's some sort of genetic mutation that causes them to change. 
if we even look at Homo sapiens prior to that moment, it was the same thing. For two million years, we basically lived the same way and didn't really change much because there was nothing changing within our genome that initiated any sort of change like that. But if you look at human history in the past, especially 30,000 years when we have some sort of archaeological evidence, that is a very different story. One of the crazy examples is, this is a, another example from some literature that I was reading. If a German lady was born in 1900 and died in 2000, she lived 100 years old, that's possible, she would have lived under Wilhelm II as an emperor, so she would have lived in an empire, and then she would have lived in the Weimar Republic, or Republican government, and she would have lived under the Nazis' Third Reich, and then she would have lived under, depending on where she was, she could have lived under the Soviet communist government, and then she could, and then she would have lived again under the democratic reunification of Germany. She would have lived in five drastically different economic and political circumstances, and she would have been fine. She would have just adapted. And that is impossible for any other species. It's impossible without some sort of genetic mutation that allows them to do that. <clears throat> That's just not something that happens. We have the same DNA, yet things are drastically different. Some guys are talking about nuclear power. The technological innovation of humanity in the last 30,000 years is astounding. We are no longer dependent upon genetic mutation for change. Whatever happened basically was like the final sort of jump, which is just not how evolution works. So it's pretty wild to think about. I want to I want to sort of give an interpretation of that from the faith because there's multiple steps along this process that just don't make sense according to our current evolutionary theories or any theory that's ever been put forward from a scientific perspective. There's, there's gaps in the story or in the reasoning behind things. We have to come to a lot of unreasonable conclusions if we're going to take it from a purely materialistic standpoint. 3.8 billion years ago, when organisms came into existence on the Earth, things that are not alive do not suddenly come to life. It, it doesn't matter how long you wait, that rock will never be animate. It's never going to happen. Animate things don't come out of inanimate things. That's the first step along the way. It just doesn't make sense from a purely materialistic standpoint. The second is, no matter how long you wait, it, it's just unreasonable to think that simple organisms will get infinitely more sophisticated. The probability arguments today are pointing to the fact that the single-cell organism will never become a sophisticated multi-cell organism. It's just, it's not the way that the world or the universe work without some sort of guidance in the process. Now, you can't, you can't sort of, from a purely materialistic standpoint, come to the guidance, but we as Christians can sort of make that jump uh, in a reasonable way. And then the third would be the cognitive revolution itself and the way that we operate as humans today. What, whatever happened 70,000 years ago cannot be explained by evolution. So with those three questions in mind, I'm going to propose that what happened 70,000 years ago was that God gave a soul to, we can say, at least one person. 
Mitochondrial DNA makes it very obvious today that we all have a single parent, which is fascinating because 50 years ago, the dominant scientific theory said that multiple populations sort of simultaneously and independently evolved into what we are today. So that actually the belief in the sort of the story of Genesis seemed impossible, but we held to it. Humana Generis said, no, we have one mother and one father. We have to believe that. And you know what that made? It made us look ridiculous to the scientific community at the time. Now that's entirely changed because back then we were basing everything on archaeological evidence instead of because we just didn't have this sort of understanding of DNA structures that we do today. It's obvious now that we all came from a single parent. We did not arise from separate populations. Every human being in the world today descends from one set of parents for all of humanity, which is an incredible thing as Christians to know, because that lines up perfectly with the story of Adam and Eve. So a proposal would be that, that God gives a soul to Adam. Now, suddenly, if you're, if you're someone who can think the way we do, and you look around at everything around you, it becomes very obvious to you, especially if you're speaking a suddenly sophisticated language, that nothing is like you. Nothing around you is like you, even if they look like you. So then we can sort of, we would have to, in a sense, make a claim from divine revolution that God gives a soul also to a woman, and, and then we have Adam and Eve, the beginning of time. Now that makes perfect sense from a scientific perspective because without, without a sort of guided process of creation, the evolution of our bodies as they happened doesn't make sense. Why did our brains keep growing? Why did our bodies evolve the way that they did? It didn't make sense on a natural level. It doesn't make sense. In an, it's actually a huge disadvantage, but it kept happening. After the soul is given to us, because the soul suddenly employs everything in our body perfectly. Our huge and sophisticated brains that we're being put to use are suddenly put to use with our intellect. The intellect that God gives us. It makes sense out of the sort of two million years of previously meaningless evolution. We also suddenly speak in a way that, that is both conceptual and allows us to sort of be aware of God. Why would we suddenly be aware of God if God didn't exist? What, that awareness is sort of a, a massive mistake, or it's, it's because God gives us, in a sense, the final steps of his image and likeness. And being in that image and likeness, we suddenly are aware that there's something much more than us out there. It allows us to transcend evolution which you could say is basically a really good explanation of free will. If we're not dependent on our genetic makeup, that means that we're sort of free from the predispositions of our sort of genetic code, our, our, our DNA. I think it's totally reasonable for God to have created human beings through an evolutionary process, through a guided evolutionary process that doesn't, it's not anti-biblical, it's not anti-church. Mitochondria DNA, our scriptures, and our church know that we have one mother and one father. And those things seem to work very well together, both from the scientific perspective today and from the perspective of our faith. So what does that explain? Well, I think, I think it explains well 
process by which God created the world. It makes sense of a lot of the sort of previously confusing things. Do we know everything? No. But by no means is our faith unreasonable. We do not have to compromise anything. Uh, our reason and our faith still go very well together. So take courage in that. And in a lot of this, dig in and sort of figure this stuff out and grapple with it. And I think the more that you grapple with it, uh, the more you'll be able to defend it in a formidable way. To me, it's, it's been a sort of enlightening experience jumping into this because um, our faith is sort of speaking deep and powerful truths into a, into a world that's asking a lot of big questions and is incapable of answering them.